Here's to the finest crew in Starfleet. Engage. Welcome to the Greatest Generation. It's a Star Trek podcast by a couple of guys who are a little bit embarrassed about having a Star Trek podcast. I'm Adam Pranica. I'm Ben Harrison, and my notebook is in the other room. My screens are closed. I'm not looking at the episode as we record. Not looking at the notes during. <laughs> uh, I will admit to, uh, I've got the the cast list open for for character names. I feel like that is especially useful on episodes like this where we can't use notes. Just yeah. to, like, make it coherent. I don't like describing people as that one guy. <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. That seems a little insulting, doesn't it? How lucky, in quotes, were we to draw this episode for this type of episode? I don't know. I kind of feel the opposite way, because I... I mean, I don't want to get too deep into the episode right now because we're in the Marin, Mm -hmm. but... uh, Yeah, can't do that. Save the episode for the episode. But I feel like one of the things that's fucked up about this episode is the structure is Mm -hmm. a little confusing, and I think I am going to be struggling to remember how it went. Well, I think that's the great thing about our show, Ben, is that between the two of us, we have one functioning brain. Yeah. I think we should be able to stitch this thing together. This is the square on the game of buttholes that is most in the spirit of The Greatest Generation. Yeah, it really is. A lot of the other ones serve to to mix it up, but this one brings us to our roots. I'm looking at myself in the camera, and I'm just noticing the hair again. <laughs> I've been starting to, like before I put on the headphones, I've got to curl the hair back behind oh, my ears. Oh, you got tuckable hair now. Yeah. My hair is is very tuckable, which is making me very not fuckable. (laughs) I had an epiphany while I was watching for our hit podcast, Friendly Fire. I don't know if we can even say that we watched that movie at this moment in time, but who cares? It won't come out for months and months, but we did watch for Friendly Fire. And one of the main actor's hair is especially unflattering. (laughs) <laughs> and it made me it made me look at an actor who is usually very good looking and see what that hair does to a very good looking person and wonder what that hair is doing to an average looking person yeah. like myself. The way it grows in is a fucking nightmare. <laughs> I'll admit to a couple of times last week holding the body trimmer in my hand wondering is this going to be the day wow when, when i do something terrible but i think i've i've pushed through it into a weird oh man acceptance like like this is stages of hair grief right <laughs> and i think i might finally be at the last stage there's a trope in television that a character shaves their head in a this is my rock bottom this is my mm-hmm. emotional nadir mm-hmm. um i guess it happens in royal tenenbaums uh, to cite a film but it, it happens in tv a lot too that a character yeah. will shave their head especially like if a woman shaves her head i feel like it's a really big deal in a tv show that scene in royal tenenbaums is so unique i would say maybe across the entire wes anderson oeuvre like, yeah i haven't seen that movie in many years but i remember the shock of it because they do that jump cut, yep. uh, hair Wilson, shaved Wilson, and then you see his wrists and the sink. It's so horrifying. 
in a way that Wes Anderson films are like that is not a quality of a Wes Anderson film is horror. Right. And it's um it's really like it it genuinely like like it brings tears to my eyes every time yeah. I see that movie, that scene, and it's such a funny movie like outside that, you know? Yeah, like yeah. like I'm laughing through most of the movie and somehow he's able to turn the car in the other direction and get me all the way to crying in a pretty brief amount of time. I feel like Wes Anderson got a, a special dispensation to use an Elliot Smith song during that scene because that feels like cheating <laughs> in yeah. a way that uh, the quality of the film and that scene is able to overcome. Yeah. Did uh, he ever find that needle? I don't know. I mean, I guess that's yeah. kind of what the mo- movie's about, right? Yeah. Now, everybody knows that Royal Tenenbaums is a film about a man (laughs) confronting his failures as a father. But what my theory presupposes is maybe it's about one of his sons finding a needle in the hay. (laughs) What a great movie. (laughs) That's such a good movie. I Um, compared a... uh, a close college friend of mine to Margot Tannenbaum (laughs) and... (laughs) And, like, I meant it as a compliment, and she took it as a compliment. Like, I think there's something so familiar about those Tenenbaum kids. Like, the broken high achiever. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not personally familiar to me, but I have met people <laughs> like that. I mean, you're... Half of that is familiar to you, I <laughs> yeah, bet. I'm a broken medium achiever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think by the time we end our conversation today, we will have decided in what ways today's episode might be broken. (laughs) I am so nervous about reviewing this episode, man. (laughs) What do you say we begin the notes-free episode of The Greatest Generation about Deep Space Nine Season 6, Episode 23? I remember it being called Profit and Lace. Do you realize how incredible this is? No, of course you don't. The title being Profit and Lace, it didn't, like, I I was sitting there thinking about the title while I was watching the episode, and it really didn't hit me until the end what the pun was. Yeah. Because I, I kept thinking lace was the word that they kept the same and that profit was something else. <laughs> yeah, this is not a Ben Sisko-centric episode. Is Ben Sisko in it? He is in the scene where uh, Quark and Rom storm in with their concerns that they haven't been able to hail anyone on Ferenginar. Right. So And then everyone fucking stomps him over <laughs> over like anyone being concerned about that at all. Think of the terrible repercussions to the Alpha Quadrant. I cannot think of any. This is an episode that opens there's been a distributive denial of service attack on Ferenginar <laughs> and the attack came from within. It was that their communications net wasn't able to withstand women's lib right is do you think that's what it is it's just like double the number of people started using the communications net and therefore it couldn't handle the the overage in capacity it sure seemed that way when we when we hear what happened like it's like these the streets of Ferenginar are filled with clothed women and it's such a dramatic moment that everyone what takes to their internet and starts <laughs> complaining and gossiping about it yeah it crashes the the global network it's a strange way to open because it it poses so many questions about like what exactly happened 
that it doesn't seem to care about. This is an episode that I feel like the episode does this, and I I feel like also we are going to do this on our episode. It's probably better to talk about generally than specifically. <laughs> and that's a good example of it, right? Like, like what exactly happened on Ferenginar? The This episode of Deep Space Nine is not too interested in those particulars. Rom is super worried about Moogie because he can't reach her. And it's like worrying about a loved one when you hear that there was a natural disaster in the city that they live in or something like, and you might not be able to reach them initially. Right. But uh, pretty in pretty short order, she and Zek are showing up at the station. And uh, my recollection is that the only rule that changed was that women are allowed to wear clothes outside the home. It sounds good to me. Oh, now you see why I like him best. Right? Right. That's and that the- is the card that collapses the entire house of cards <laughs> that is Ferenginar society. Yeah, that's pretty amazing because it's not even they have the right to earn profit or whatever. It's just that they can wear clothes. We get a couple of female... Ferengi costumes in this episode. And with what we know about the weather on Ferenginar, do you think that it's a place like, like if you watch Deadwood, the bottoms of women's dresses are just constantly muddy and disgusting <laughs> from walking through town. Do you think that's what it is on Ferenginar when, when the women start putting on clothing and, and walking through the muck? The, uh, it's got to be terrifically dirty. Yeah, like if if you were... Starting from zero, what would women clothes, women's clothes look like is a very interesting question that I feel like this episode sort of fails to engage with at all. Like because I, I feel like this episode stopped at novelty sombrero as <laughs> as an inspiration <laughs> for for Ferengi clothing. Because like women's clothes are so much more politicized and uh, and scrutinized than men's yeah. clothes like there's like did like who wore it best and and fashion do's and don'ts like so much at least in our culture so much attention is focused on whether or not women are doing it right and i do like the like i think that that would have been a fun episode right like what if what if it was met with relatively little resistance because people instantly saw the profit potential, but then an entire planet was just like, what could women wear? Like, let's explore this as a as a thing. One of the few things that this episode gets right is putting women's clothing in practical economic terms. Yeah. That conversation that, that Lady Quark has at the end with, uh, with the soda magnate... <laughs> Like, he actually A to B to C to D's it. He's like, well, women are going to be wearing clothing. I know that might be an assault on your sensibilities, but (laughs) uh, women need to carry things, so they'll need pockets. But what do you put in a pocket? You need to put money in there because they're going to be out buying stuff. And then, like, he constructs a a society beginning with clothing that equals a net positive for everyone. Oh, there'll be plenty of profit for everyone. It's the kind of argument that like pro-immigration economists make, which is like there is very little evidence of, of like cultures being wrecked by immigrant cultures. There's very little evidence that you know, like, like, and and there's a, a preponderance of evidence that immigrants are like very highly motivated workers and they commit 
fewer crimes than native-born populations, and that they have lots and lots of economic uh, benefits to uh, the, the countries they move to because they grow the labor force and then also grow the tax base and also grow the amount of you know, consumers that are out there. And that's the exact argument Quark is making. Like, what if overnight Ferengi could dev- double its uh, number of laborers and double its number of consumers? Right. And that's, like, maybe the best thing in the episode is just, like, making a, a, a somewhat tricky economic argument pretty simple. Right. And I think there are scenes to see in a positive light but i think when you're just breaking this episode down it's establishing the idea of something that that it never pays off like no one grows in this ep we begin with like a scene of workplace harassment right oh yeah i forgot about that and you're like at least for me i was like okay well if the rule of this episode is quark finally getting his comeuppance for being a shitbag manager then, like, I'm all for it. Like, to whatever extent, embarrassment is a worthy punishment for his many crimes. It's better than nothing, I If guess. embarrassment is a punishment, what did we do to deserve this, Adam? I know. <laughs> I know, but the, the episode doesn't even have, isn't even convicted enough in itself to, to realize that right. by, by the end of it. The episode uh, starts with Quark committing a terrible crime, and then Zek and Moogie and Mayherdu show up, and they are there to explain what happened. And the other shoe that drops is that since Zek has been stripped of power, Brunt has been made the acting Nagus, which uh, <laughs> speaks to the extremely limited population of Ferenginar. Almost no one lives there. I wanted to do, to know more about the nuts and bolts of this because in the event of like a global communication collapse, you could understand why like a sort of coup could take place during. Yeah. But you also need a a a communication structure in order to make that happen. And like I I didn't necessarily buy Brunt's rushing into that power vacuum yeah constructively it's it's a little hand wavy because wasn't brunt like on the team in the magnificent ferengi episode also he lost his job and then he got his job back and then he mentions that like he bribed all the right people to get power adjacent enough to take advantage of the situation yeah that happened fast (laughs) i gotta say like in a clunker of an episode uh, Jeffrey Combs fucking carries this thing. Uh, yeah. He is chewing up the scenery. He's chewing up the costumes. He's chewing up the camera. He's, <laughs> he's chewing up Alexander Siddig, the director. He's got those sharp teeth. Of he this can, episode. He could chew his ass off. He's incredible. Whatever alien type Mayer do is, does, like, what's the deal with Brunt also having a guy? You're a lash? Does the FCA appoint you a Mayherdu type when you become the the Nagus, or was Brunt trying to kind of make make himself seem Nagusdential by hiring a guy like that? I love that they don't take Zek's Mayherdu away in this context. <laughs> no. Like 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 the new Nagus just gets one. 
and then subsequent Neguses get theirs. Right. But you don't lose it. It's not like losing the ability to fly on Air Force One when you're not president anymore. <laughs> it's like you get to keep Air Force One. Right, yeah. That's your Air Force One now. Uh-huh. <laughs> I love when they first meet each other, the Mayher do, and then Mayher too. Like, <laughs> like they, go, they go chest to chest. Yeah. Well cast. That guy has a like almost perfect Mayher do body. If they ever got into a fight... God, the differences in sizes of characters in this episode especially yeah. has got to create a challenge when you're blocking. And like, I feel like you have a very limited amount of places to stick a camera in order to get the compositions you're going for because of those height disparities. I think that there's a lot of weird tone stuff in this episode, but for all of that, the camera directing is great and... Yeah. There are a couple of really fun transitions, like the first scene when Zek comes in and, like, you know, doing his customary takeover of Quark's apartment and making it the official in absentia government of Ferenginar. Yeah. He there's a transition where he like sneezes into a a box of beetle snuff, and like the puff of bug powder fills the frame, and and that's where it cuts. <laughs> Did we always know beetle snuff was explosive? <laughs> it, it seems dangerous. Yeah, somebody must have snuck some white pepper in there with, with his snuff. Is beetle snuff like brown brown, I wonder? <laughs> is it is it cut with, with some sort of powder? It sounds like it. Cut with whatever kind of gunpowder you use on a Ferengi whip. We never get a a cloud of smoke transition on this show, so that was fun. It was super fun. Golden cotton, the golden cotton. So, so Zek really wants to take power back from Brunt and feels that he can, and the the way he's going to do it is by appealing to the greed of sort of like the Ferengi captains of industry. And these are, you know, like people that Zach feels will be loyal to him because he helped them all get fabulously wealthy uh, in his capacity as uh, Grand Nagus. And so he puts uh, he puts Rom, Quark, and Nog in in like a call center to <laughs> to set this up. Like, call all of these people to me. Here's here's my here's my phone book. Here are the people that we can gather around me to make my case for maintaining the throne this open concept office space just gave me the cringes <laughs> like we've been in these places before Ugh. Ben. it is it is not good not good for not good for a person like me um, you gotta get the white noise machines cranked if you're gonna do a call center with an open concept floor space right yeah especially when it's three people making calls and the call center is arranged in a triangle where they're all facing in. So they're all like yeah. talking at each other. Did you get the moment where Max Gradenchik was doing a voice? Like <laughs> he was like he changed his his rom voice into like serious businessman voice in this scene. <laughs> My wife and I I always bust each other's chops over the like on the phone with a grown-up voice that we occasionally do you gotta do that you can't let serious people hear how we sound no. normally <laughs> that would be terrible yeah so uh so every i think they there's like 400 something uh, Ferengi on the on the list of people to call and 
uh, all but one. I'm out at this point, Ben. You, like you checked I, out of like, the episode. No, I mean, if I'm one of the three, if I'm uh, making these calls, like forget it. I <laughs> I'm not making a third of those 400 calls. <laughs> <laughs> like I I would be I'd be happy to see Ferenginar fall if yeah. that was the if that was what it took. I know the feeling. I've done phone banking in like elections like i i try to make a personal commitment in a in a presidential election or whatever to call you know 30 people or something like that and remind them about you know when the election is and how to get to their polling place or whatever i respect the people so much who can do the phone bank who can do the door-to-door thing yeah i don't have that in me well my wife has actually like worked on campaigns professionally and it's like it's like a part of the gig. It's like there's a part of your day called call time where you just sit there and roll calls for hours. I would be permanently scarred by that. Yeah. Like I, it, I would not be able to get over it. I have the utmost respect because 30 yeah. calls is like more, you know, like I lose my will to live at call number three. <laughs> do you ever do that thing where you call someone that you're supposed to call like for like something professional back when we had professional calls uh-huh. and then they call you back and then for whatever reason you're like i i'm not in the mental space to have a phone call right now and then like you screen a call that you were like <laughs> expecting and that and it's a call it's a conversation you need to have i do this all the time oh yeah can't remember what it was but i was i was playing phone tag with bikram chatterjee the uh, managing director of max fun last week and now there's it, a call i would screen <laughs> I had had a jazz gum about an hour before he called me back for something. And I was like, there's no fucking way. I can't do it, man. <laughs> I cannot seem like a grown up at yeah. a time like this. That's not going to work. So, so, so the phone calls net one taker. Yeah. Like, like they do all this calling to, to get them, like they need to, to get an audience for Zek. And this audience of one is recruited, the uh, the soda magnate of Ferenginar. Yeah. He's the he's the head of the of the Coca Cola equivalent of Ferenginar. I don't remember what the company was called. Drinks Loco Cola. The slime is cola in the galaxy. Seemed very slurm related to me. Yeah. Didn't it to you? Like I wonder if did Futurama bite this rhyme? I don't know. It seems like it could have because Futurama came out after this, right? This is 1999? It did, yeah. So it made me wonder. Which is cool, because I love Slurms McKenzie, and I love everything about that Slurm storyline. <laughs> Wimmy Wham Wham Wazzle! Let's party! I also loved Nilva. I think, uh, like, yeah. for all of the complaints I have with this episode, introducing the character of Nilva gets a thumbs up from me. Henry Gibson plays Nilva, and he is, like, one of the classic actors, like, classic comedy actors from, like, back in the day. Totally. His sensibility about things is so welcome. Yeah, he's, uh, one thing that I, uh, that I read about the episode was that there was a lot of conflict between the producers and then, uh, Armin Jimmerman and, and Alexander Siddig kind of had one take on the script, and... Iris Stephen Bear and whoever co-wrote it with him had a very different take on the script. Mm-hmm. Like the stuff I read was, I kind of hated it because it kind of felt like Iris Stephen Bear was throwing 
Armin Shimmerman and Alexander sitting under the bus a little bit, talking about why the episode didn't turn out great. Yeah, it's not a good look when you say that the problem with the episode was the conflict between writer and production, and you know what you saw on screen was not (laughs) what (laughs) Iris Stephen Bear was writing for. Right. I don't see this being directed any better, to be honest. I think that this is a journeyman execution of a garbage script, in my estimation. I think you and I might have read many of the same articles about this episode, and one of the things that stood out to me was how much darker Alexander Siddig's vision of this ep was than what we got on screen, like to the extent that they had to do reshoots, because some of what he got was just like tonally darker than what worked and and with what mixed with the rest of of the footage that they got and and the heart attack moment is one of those examples right so quark and moogie get into an argument about moogie's vision for the future right a vision that includes a female grand nagus at some point and they have this yelling argument and moogie does a fall into the into the fall cushion And I guess that's an example of a scene that was supposed to be incredibly dark, like Boogie Nights dark between Dirk and his mom. Damn. Wow. Man, I wish that was the version we got, honestly, because it makes like your mom having a near death experience into like a bit in a way that like and Dr. Bashir coming out and talking to the to the family about it into a bit. The conceit of the episode is how are we going to get Quark dressed up like a girl and pretending to be a girl for the benefit of women's rights? Like, it, it is put the guy that is the furthest away from agreeing with us on the issue uh, in the position of having to defend the issue. I think you and I are in agreement that TV on hard mode attempts to pull from many genres at once or many feelings at once like to combine aspects of comedy and drama is much more difficult than to make 42 minutes of a thing that is just comedy or just drama right it's the how do you how do you have one of your characters attempt suicide in a film as silly as royal tenenbaums and have it mean something great example and i wonder to what extent that's related to the idea of like Adam Ragusea would be a great person to ask about something like this. Like, adding too much salt or too much sugar to a thing <laughs> makes it... Uh, like, you can't you can't remove the salt from a dish once it's in there. And, you, and I wonder if the same... Like, sugar would be a better analogy here, but, like, once you... Once you reach a tipping point in comedy, yeah. there's no going back tonally, no matter how much drama you try to force into it. And I wonder if... If, like, that's a scene, Moogie having the heart attack, where you've reached the tipping point, there's no... That's the point of no return. Like, you can't bring it back to neutral or back to dramatic after that. Yeah. Maybe the problem at the core of this is that that's not a very funny idea. And that that these are not comedy writers, so they may have thought it was funny in the writer's room and been incorrect about that. I wonder how weird it is to be Wallace Shawn and to be like an actor of his caliber who can do comedy at the level that he does. And like the failures of this episode are not Wallace Shawn's clearly. No. But like 
when your wallet's Sean, you don't just get your pages, right? You get the entire script to read. <laughs> yeah. What must a seasoned comic actor feel when, like, I wonder how this episode looked on the page versus what we got on screen. Boy, yeah, I can't imagine. <laughs> like the got to be a little better though, right? Yeah, got to be a little bit better. So, so yeah, um, what has been set up is that Nilva is going to meet with Moogie, except for Moogie has had a heart attack and she is not going to be in a position, like she's in recovery, she's going to be fine, but she's not going to be ready to have this meeting. She's going to need a few days complete rest. Also, I've given her a lobotomy. (laughs) Unfortunately, she will not remember anything about who you are, Quark, or... (laughs) why she's here also she would have recovered more quickly but i connected the wrong fluid to her iv bag and (laughs) that was my bad because i had one bag of something for me and one bag of something for her in my hand and it was a slip of the mind really and it's a shame that that much urine went into her bloodstream but it did and you know i have malpractice insurance and I'm sure this will be a great payout, and I know that your people love that kind of thing. (laughs) So maybe it's a net positive. I'm not sure. I'm not here to make an ethical judgment about a mistake that I made that is terrible, I admit. If you thought that Julian Bashir's work here was done this episode, (laughs) you are sadly mistaken because, like, I love how this scene is blocked. Like, uh, like I remember, like, Julian's in his red scrubs back there and he just sort of, like, leans in the frame with the news (laughs) about the the, the heart replacement and he's like, yeah, so a consequence of this is, like, your mom needs bed rest. She's not going to be in the episode until the end. He is in the heart replacement scrubs, isn't he? He is. He's, yeah. Moogie, Those are the heart scrubs. Moogie is a lot like Picard in a lot of ways. What are you doing? Exactly. So there is a lot about this story that strange credulity, but 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 one thing this episode is asking you to believe is that the soda magnate of Ferenginar is depending on the idea of Zek's lady friend, Moogie specifically, taking this meeting. Right. She's got to be a part of this. This is a uh, a have to have that I was not clear about until this moment. <laughs> like, really? Like. She's she's that instrumental to the negotiation? Okay. I mean, I think that, like, that part actually kind of makes sense to me, which is this guy is coming from a culture that is so dipped in misogyny that he couldn't even conceive of a woman being intellectually substantial enough to make a case for herself as right. a economic actor. And that part of the idea of Moogie being the 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 principal in this meeting is just as like physical evidence of the idea that she's arguing for i am a capable woman that understands money in a way that is sophisticated enough to put me in a position where i'm like technically running the ferengi alliance from the shadows so you have to take me seriously you have to take this request seriously 
it's almost as if the reason for Brunt being on this episode is to rub in this point. Get down on your knees and beg for mercy. He's like, boy, you guys are fucked. You really needed Moogie, but she's she's recuperating with that heart thing. Seriously, he just comes in to like salt the wound periodically. Like, yeah. like, like, so you're telling me Brunt has been elevated to the height of political and economic power in the Ferengi Alliance, and his first act is to go off to the remote human space station of Deep Space Nine to gloat at the guy he got it from? This feels like a 80s summer movie where, <laughs> like, the land developer is threatening to bulldoze your beloved home because, like, he's there to incite the desperation of the incident that is the operation done to Quark, right? right. Because... <laughs> Once once Brunt comes into glow, everyone's like, Well, we can't let those developers win. Yeah. Like like we've gotta become goonies and turn Quark into a girl. We've gotta beat them at the downhill ski race and then yeah. undergo a sex change operation. I no longer believe that Dr. Bashir can't do anything. I, I believe that <laughs> I believe in the power of Dr. Bashir's magical surgery. Yeah. Uh, Bashir giveth <laughs> Bashir taketh away. I wonder why he didn't send Kern off with a couple of great big tits. You know? <laughs> These might get in the way as I inspect suitcases coming through the station's baggage handling system. I wouldn't know the difference between being flat chested and not. <laughs> Fun bags? I think all bags are intrinsically fun as you inspect them for bombs and other contraband. (laughs) The stuff with Rom related to everything happening to Quark is very interesting to me. Like, Rom seems more suited to and able to do what Quark is doing, but they need a business-minded person in there, and that's just not Rom. But, like, in every other way, Rom is admitting an interest and an experience in gender play. Right. He has a an, an a studied understanding of, like, the different ways we perform gender. Right. That, like, unfortunately is kind of played for a joke, right? It's like, huh, what's going on with Rom that he knows how to sit and walk like a girl? I thought they made fun of Quark way more than Rom, and I guess it's sad that I thought that... Uh, that what they did to Rom was like, maybe just by comparison, like, fine. Yeah. I mean, I think the difference is that, like, I, I think Max Grudenchik played it with a lot of integrity and respect. Yeah. And I like that Lita liked it. It would have been different if he made fun of himself during, too. Right. And that he didn't. Like, his sincerity means a whole lot. It's a weird thing. Like, I. I don't know why I clicked on this, but I was like, I was like scrolling through Twitter or something and happened upon a video of, um, uh, oh, what's that fucking podcast guy? Uh, Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan. Talking to. How did, how did we both know that? <laughs> Cause he's <laughs> that like the fucking num- podcast guy. He's the number yeah. one podcast guy, uh, for, <laughs> for whatever that means, uh, talking to Bill Burr and, like Joe Rogan is like sitting there like 
trying to do like a comedy bit about how like it, it's like not you know it's unmanly to wear a face mask and bill burr uh, is like, yeah, like you with your no medical degree and I with my no medical degree are really going to sit here and tell people what they shouldn't, shouldn't do with regards to the pandemic. Great point, Joe Rogan. Like, it really made me love Bill Burr. It was like, Bill Burr was very funny and made Joe Rogan seem like a dope. But Joe Rogan's defense of like, it's not manly, like, this is what dudes do thing, like, it had been like such a long time since I'd like talked to somebody with a worldview like that or even encountered that kind of worldview. I am so used to performative masculinity being something to make fun of that it's weird to hear about someone so sincere about it. Right. And like, I don't listen to that show. I I have very, very little familiarity with it uh, aside from like the times that it makes news because like elon musk smoked a blunt or whatever so Mm -hmm. i didn't really like i like i was really surprised at the tone of that and it it kind of reminds me of this of like like how how could quark a man's man know any of this shit right which is like a little bit dishonest about the kind of character quark is because he's like he is not like a vein popping hyper-masculine character, you know? Yeah, I mean, you would assume that someone in the kind of business that Quark is in would at least have the performative kind of progressivism to make a business that earns money from from men and women. Right. (laughs) You know, if for no other reason, know everyone's wants and desires to make money. Yeah, like at least like the bare minimum, but he doesn't even have the that amount of curiosity, <laughs> and that's almost unbelievable, right? Yeah, like th- that would be believable if he lived on Ferenginar, but he lives in a place where that's like those values are shunned. <laughs> so, speaking of values, I don't understand why there aren't rules about operating a business on a Federation station that would prohibit the sort of shit that he does to his employees i mean yeah i think that there are rules about that like i think there was like a season one episode where cisco specifically addressed the idea that quark should not sexually harass his employees allura's a human female i like she could run this up the chain yeah like i think that that felt like a bad comedy script idea that the writers thought would be a funny punchline to the episode like what if we set up Quark putting skeevy moves on this lady and then it's a hilarious conclusion when she is receptive to those skeevy moves right so there is a makeover scene Quark is revealed to be a little eared distractingly big titted Ferengi woman. And by distracting, I mean distracting to himself. Right. (laughs) It's weird to like both want and not want more detail about this because we understand that there was a medical (laughs) procedure that that Quark underwent by Dr. Bashir. Yeah. Wherein he had physical prosthetics 
put in, potentially some things removed, but also like a dose of hormones that is right. having an effect on his his temperament and also maybe his voice a little bit. And I just don't understand the rules of this. Yeah, like they give him a rack, but they're not able to change his voice. That's what I'm saying. Like, like why, why are some things possible and some not? Again, I tried my hardest, and at some at a certain point, I put the wrong bag on the IV, and it was only on there for 30 or 40 minutes max. Once we got into that 40 and 50 cc's of urine, it became dangerous. <laughs> I had to stop it. I honestly feel terrible for myself, first and foremost, because I was really looking forward to that particular bag. I'd been saving it for a special occasion like the completion of a nearly impossible surgery. Quark wasn't involved in the Vrenak plan, right? With the with the ultra Cardassian honey stick and the <laughs> and the hollow sweet thing. Like I'm wondering why hollow sweet was never an option here. Oh yeah. They do say better than a hologram at some point, which like I, I feel like the verisimilitude of holograms is a very squishy concept in Star Trek if that's if they're saying that because like sometimes we find out it's been a simulation the whole time would anyone else like to speak up or shall we end this charade and other times it's like oh like well he'll know if this is you know a fake character that we made in the holodeck I also feel like if you are committed to the idea, if you're Iris Stephen Barron, you're committed to the idea of putting Quark in a dress with tits, you're going to find a way to make that happen. And yeah. you're going to pound this story into a shape that could only lead there. Yep. And that's, I think, the the fundamental problem with the episode. It's like, it's one idea without enough script around it to really get us there. Like I think there's there's a lot of levels on on which to to criticize this, but maybe the the most basic is just that it's like barely anything. Like yeah. it's a, it's a bottle episode that doesn't have anything to do with the stories that we've been telling. It's like it it stands out a lot, I think, because so much of this part of season six, especially, has been so great. And so, like, why like pull the show car over and do this? Like, oh man, it, this is not a pullover. This is like we took the show car into the ramp and it is like doing handsprings <laughs> down the road. This is like the cop car in an 80s cop show like, hitting the ramp and then like landing on its roof. Yeah, totally. <laughs> the comedy that really challenges me in an interesting way is the stuff that I occasionally don't like that that. This is uncomfortable. This is making me uncomfortable. Yeah. But this episode is not capable of doing that. And I think one of the one of the unforgivable sins of this episode is just how in- uninteresting it is in the ways it attempts to make fun of the thing that it's making fun of. Yeah. Like in a weird way, I would almost respect it more if it were more offensive. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Like because if, at least that would be like taking a swing. If it had the courage of its convictions, it might be a little bit more interesting. 
as yeah, an, as, like does as, that make sense? Yeah, like, I feel like that's a comment that could get me in trouble, but I hope that that is interpreted in the right way, in the way that I mean it. I definitely see what you mean, and and I think that like while we're talking about courage of its convictions, like the argument that we praise um, that Quark makes to um, to Nilva about like why it would be good, and and like Nilva's got like the the. He's got the ear of the FCA. He's got some some unique political power to like make Zex problems go away if he can be convinced. And like Quark makes one argument to him about the you know the pockets and the money for for the ladies' outfits. Like, look at what I'm wearing. What do you think this cost? What if I told you <laughs> that you could get this not at a store but from Confederated Products? <laughs> 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 but from the slug juice <laughs> to the to the ham even that cologne you liked <laughs> to this dress i'm wearing yeah but no but like like that is just one argument and like this show already had like a pretty good ferengi women's lib episode in the one where they like went back home and Right. Discovered that Moogie was earning profit. And I don't think it had a super satisfying ending, but I don't think that this is the way to pick that back up. Here's, I guess here's what I'm trying to get at is how many people watching need to be convinced that Ferengi women need rights? Like, does anybody watching Star Trek need to be persuaded of the value of women in the Ferengi workforce? Like, why relitigate a thing that's already settled? Right. Like, for our entertainment? Yeah. Like, in TNG, we get a lot of discussion of the idea of, like, oh, yeah, on Earth, in the past, it used to really suck for women. And humans have made a great deal of progress on that. And women are now full equals in uh, the economy, in the law, in society, in all ways. And, you know, that's, I don't think, I don't think that that's depicted well in TNG, but it is at least spoken and given, given a name, you know, like they, they, they make the case for it being the case. And in Deep Space Nine, giving us a window on Ferengi culture gives us an opportunity to look at a society that took a very different tack in becoming a spacefaring player in the galactic conversation and this comes on the heels of the episode of like what if we could get the Ferengi involved in the war against the Dominion and instead the diplomatic papers making that overture get lost because we went on the uh, ship full of children but like right. the Ferengi are as technologically advanced as capable as the Federation right and they oppress 53% of their population. <laughs> How much more advanced would they be if they if they took the governor off of their engine? Right. Know? Yeah. What this episode asks us to do is is be in the position of letting ourselves be convinced that Ferengi women need liberation, and I don't think anybody watching, no matter where they fall on the political spectrum, needs to be convinced of that. And also, you know, the the cross-dressing cork as the instrument of that is kind of offensive. So <laughs> I think it, it fails on the fundamentals and it fails on the execution. More and more.
as you're experiencing this episode, you're the expectation is that it is going to end in a cul-de-sac of epiphany. Like right. Like like we're pulling this episode into the driveway and like there will be some sort of growth, but you know, instead we get a very uh silent movie style Pepe <laughs> Le Pew you know, pawing of the of the soda magnate at at Lady Quark. Yakety sax playing Yeah. While they chase each other around the apartment. Brunt coming in and everything Brunt says being disputed by a growing level of nudity that Quark is more willing to to demonstrate. Right. This is a women women's lib by Quark dumping them out. Right. <laughs> Brunt is is totally uh, flummoxed by this. <laughs> he cannot believe that he can that it's not possible for him to present a a convincing argument to the soda magnate. Why? And and so Nilva like Nilva is in the bag, right? He's he's gonna go home and make his case that Zach should be reinstated. This was my confusion at the end of this episode because we get kind of an elliptical edit where we're back in Quark's Quark's looking at a ring that the soda magnate gave him. He's feeling very emotional because he's had reverse surgery now to turn back into Quark, but he's still feeling the hormonal effects. He has an overwhelming number of lady feelings. You may be a lousy son. But you made a wonderful daughter. <laughs> and they're fitting a lot of exposition into this scene because I was I was confused. Soda Magnate goes back, but it did it was not clear to me in any way about whether or not uh, Brunt would have to vacate the negacy. Right. Uh, and to give it back to Zek. Zek and, and Moogie are are in the bar, like having their one last laugh with the gang about their, their great adventure and the friends they made along the way. It's famous last words when Zek says, if all goes well, you know, when we get back, I'll be back on top. Very unconvincing. Uh, <laughs> and the last seconds of this episode, Ben, are like the bookends. Like we get the second bookend to the first, which is Quark's employee has read... The Umox book. Fifty Shades of Umox. And is ready to perform, and Quark isn't into it. And then you hang on that moment for a second, thinking, well, well, there it is. Quark has learned his lesson. He has he's only been able to feel empathy for for the ladies around him by experiencing the many injustices that that they go through. Before the very last line of dialogue is like basically, oh fuck it, let's go get a hand job <laughs> by know. by an employee. I was shocked, not that he did it, because this is in keeping with what a dirtbag quark is. I was shocked at the construction of an episode, just whether or not it's about anything, that an episode just full on refused to have any sort of journey for the main character that we went along with. It, it's almost nihilistic in that way. Like, and, and especially for this show, which is so willing to change characters radically. I think when you're a fan of this show, you're, you're asked to like experience the many indignities that a quark demonstrates. Like, like he's a hard character to be with because of how much of a shitbag he is. I don't think either of us are asking for him to 
like change his ways and redeem himself and be a great person. But I think any person watching any episode of anything, they don't want their to feel like their time is wasted. Right. And and that was the feeling that I had at the end of this by that very last line of dialogue was like it was for nothing. Yeah. Like I don't care about how the Ferengi Alliance's politics go. Yeah. The this show has never made it feel important. So the 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 stakes of the episode are can Quark be improved? And apparently their conviction is that he can't. I mean, even on more generally like is it possible for Quark to experience a thing like anyone else would? Like to recognize that he's been through something even. Yeah. Like not even that it changes him. And it, and it doesn't even seem like he's able to achieve that. Nuts. <laughs> Did you like this episode, Ben? You really want to do this here. Now, okay, okay, let's do it. Do it. No. Uh, this is talked about as among the worst episodes of Deep Space Nine. And maybe in the conversation for me as among the worst episodes of Star Trek. I don't think it like does the thing that Star Trek sets out to do. I don't and and I think that the thing I hate about it is that it doesn't even try. It's like trying the opposite thing. So, yeah, and I don't like the um I I I think that the the writers throwing the director and star under the bus after the fact is a really ugly look. Yeah. So, thumbs down from me. How about you, Adam? I keep thinking about the Deep Space Nine car hitting the ramp and flying off the cliff like the Toontz's <laughs> car, you know? This isn't just the goodwill of Deep Space Nine that the show is able to trade on in season six. It's the many advances that TNG was able to make in terms of representation, which in its own right was trying to right the many wrongs that a TOS did in terms of what it did and and TOS did some some good things in terms of like racial representation and diversity and stuff but like this episode really made me think a lot about how Star Trek right now trades on its ideals of being an inclusive and diverse place that is welcoming to every type of person no matter who you are and that wasn't always true and I don't know how Star Trek as a brand and as a place has built up the equity that it has when clearly after almost 200 episodes of Star Trek that it's possible for a franchise to make something like this that is so retrograde in its depiction of a gender. Yeah. Like how do they not get it at this point? I'm glad Star Trek is the way it is right now. It feels like it's it's never been more inclusive but i don't think you get to be off the hook for the sins of something like this in the way that like we're not off the hook for our many mistakes making the greatest generation like right like we haven't been perfect either but i don't think we're given the credit nor would we accept being uh, a shining light in any way the way star trek gets to be right it's a thing that maybe wants to pat itself on the back too much it's hard. It's it's hard when you make a certain amount of things to like confront the truth of the things you made previously. And I don't think anyone's asking for the Star Trek industrial complex to like self-flagellate 
<laughs> itself, you know, over its mistakes. But yeah. Like, let's be real. Like, when we consume Star Trek, we're consuming all of it, and it's not always great. Just like our show isn't always great. It's shocking to be reminded that it, w- it was possible to do something like this for a show that we celebrate so uh, wholeheartedly yeah. right now. So let's uh, let's throw this episode on the junk pile and move on to something that is always delightful, which is our Priority One message inbox. Our P1 message is never junky. Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Need a supplemental income. Supplemental income? Supplemental. Supplemental. Yeah, it's extra. But the interest alone could be enough to buy this ship. Going to start with this first message of a personal nature. It's from Aaron. It's to Andrew. And the message goes like this. I love you, bitch. I ain't never going to stop loving you, bitch. (laughs) Uh, Aaron, in the notes to Andrew, says his birthday is June 10th. So uh, the June 8th podcast would be perfect. We missed it by a couple weeks. Aaron really laying the wood (laughs) onto Andrew uh, with that term of endearment. Indeed. Next uh, priority one message here is from Diane Isis, and it's to Rockadella DeLuca, and it goes like this. To my wonderful husband slash drag sister, I love you. There isn't a lot of over- overlap between drag and Star Trek, but God bless the writers for writing an episode that appeals solely to our niche interests. Just like this episode, you pull together disparate elements to create something incredible. I say to you as I say to Quark, stay sickening queen. Wow. You know, Diane Isis has made me think about this episode a little differently, and I wonder to what extent this episode is enjoyed by by those who are interested in the drag culture. Yeah. Like, as a, as a form of representation. The gender play being being something that's, like, maybe looked at more closely than anything else in this to episode. To the exclusion of other things. Like, right. Like, in 97, you're not seeing a lot of uh, drag culture representation. Maybe that's the thing that you love. Yeah. And maybe that's enough. That's, that's pretty good. I mean, Quark is giving me a lot of, uh, a lot of tassel realness, you know? Yeah. Uh, Quark, pretty fierce this episode. Pretty fierce indeed. Well, if you'd like to leave a Priority One message on the show, we would sure appreciate it because it helps us cover the cost of production. It's 100 bucks for a personal message and 200 for a commercial message, and you can do it by going to MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron. Hey, Adam. What's that, Ben? Did you find yourself a drunk Shimoda? I think at some point along the way, there was a chance to pull the emergency brake on this episode and go, like, we don't have it. <laughs> we don't have a strong enough idea for what this is. And while or we it disagree would... in a key way on what this is. Sure. On the hit podcast, Friendly Fire, I think a not uncommon story about film production is just how much conflict is brought to set between... Uh, the creatives and the actors like it's just a nightmare to conceive of a production environment where there's that level of of disagreement or or one side not talking to the other about what its vision is and I just get 
I don't know how in an era of television where you get 26 episodes, how you can't just go like, well, when we broke the season, we had, I feel like maybe 30 episodes. We called it to 26. These are what we have. <laughs> I have no idea how there wasn't a backup episode that could have stepped in here that was right. that had fewer conflicts in it than this. Yeah. So I think my Shimoda is going to be anyone who had the chance to stop this <laughs> and chose not to. Wow. Like that's I think that's like an executive producer Shimoda, right? Yeah, you got to break the glass if you're the EP on this show and and pull it. And I think unfortunately for this episode it was written by the showrunner. So somebody who had some ego points to lose on either side where it's their script but also their show (laughs) yeah what about you ben uh i think i'm gonna give it to lita i think that um she was just a bright spot in the episode for me like as a a very uh, femme character you know, her utility in the scenes of how are we going to teach Quark to, like, walk around in these stripper heels and convince somebody that he is a, a woman uh, was was very fun. And I think that Chase Masterson, like, made a kind of skeevy scene seem, like, a little bit more enjoyable just for for the way she... Like, she kind of, like, comes into the center of that scene and is a a force of positivity in it, you know? She acts as the firewall between the people who make fun of Quark and Rom, and especially Rom. Right. And those who support Rom in his understanding of what Quark needs to do. Yeah. She does not jump onto the pile on Rom when Rom is making his many demonstrations in a way that really uh, her stock rises to me for yeah. that. Yeah. She rules. Yeah. Gotta get that, get that gold press Get that, get that gold press Am I right? Am I right? Boy, do I love a microdose gummy from Lumi Labs. I'm, uh, I'm running low, so I'm going to head over to microdose.com pretty soon and put in another order. Microdosing is a technique I use to steer my mentals in a preferred direction several times a week. And uh, I just love it because you can really predict what is going to happen and to what degree it is going to happen. Because these are very low dose cannabis gummies that uh, give you an entry level dose that help you feel just the right amount of good. And they've been super loyal as sponsors to Greatest Trek and Greatest Gen, so I hope you will give them a try. Get 30% off your first order, plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code SCARVES. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code is SCARVES for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code SCARVES. You might have heard us talk about Squarespace before, and you're thinking, what do I need a website for? I already have a bunch of profiles across the different social medias. But isn't it time you had a place online that wasn't owned by a social media company? How about you take control of your online identity with a website of your own? For that, there's Squarespace. With Squarespace, you can buy a URL and build a customized website with your name, and not a giant social media company's name, with your name attached and a bunch of numbers at the end. With Squarespace, you can have a place on the internet personalized to your aesthetic. 
that lets you tell people about who you are instead of an algorithm. And the best part is, you don't have to be an experienced designer or a web page creator to make something great because Squarespace is always there for you with their award-winning 24 by 7 customer support. Don't settle for being another company's product. Be your own product with a website that's all you with Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code SCARVES to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com. The code is SCARVES. Think it. Dream it. Make it with Squarespace. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Well, uh, the next episode has got to rule compared to this one, right? <laughs> yeah. So no there's a, there's nowhere to go but up, Adam. <laughs> yeah, we are we are in the ditch right now uh, in Deep Space Nine. What's it going to be for the next episode, Ben? You tell me that while I go over to the game of buttholes, the will of the prophets, and uh, see where our runabout is. Well, the next episode is season six, episode 24, Time's Orphan. An accident turns O'Brien's eight-year-old daughter into a wild, dangerously unsocialized 18-year-old. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Molly's about to grow up real fast, Adam. <laughs> Did you add the wild, dangerous part to that read, or, or is that what the copy actually says? That's the copy. Wow. Yeah, she she becomes like a like like a child raised by wolves essentially. Okay. <laughs> is this another this has got to be another one of those something happens at Miles O'Brien. I can't remember it may be a transporter accident which really like if you're a transporter chief oh, no. ha- having a yeah. transporter accident happen that close to home has got to be shameful on a lot of levels. Well, Ben, I'm looking at the game of buttholes, World of Profits, and we are currently uh, pulsing on top of Commander Riker's bearded face. (laughs) Today's Caught in the Nebula episode. 
was square 82. Uh, it looks like in the deep distance is a space butthole, which would take us down all the way to square 34. So that would be pretty big hit there. That's a measure of a man episode, I believe. You're required to learn as you play. Roll. All right, here we go. I hit it. Oh, <laughs> I rolled a five. Wow. We hit the space butthole. We're back down to square 34. It's the Measure of a Man episode. Oh, man. The uh, episode where we flip a coin and then vehemently argue the pro-con of the episode as we talk about it. One of one of our most hated types of episodes. I, uh, I thought that people liked it when we did that before. I think this is going to be fun. Uh, the performative aspect of this is one that's interesting. I think it's it's fun to be a little antagonistic. Yeah, it's like high school speech and debate. You come in prepared to argue either side, and uh, yeah. you find out what you're going to be doing as the episode happens to you. We did so much work to get up into the 80s on this <laughs> game board. I can't believe we got kicked in the junk like that. I know, it's wild. I mean, that's, wow. the, that's the treachery of the game of buttholes, the will of the prophets. Wow. Uh, the the least treacherous among us are our many supporters. We call them the Friends of DeSoto. Uh, Friends of DeSoto, go to MaximumFun.org slash join to support our shows on a monthly basis, and they're what's keeping us going right now. They sure are. Uh, we also appreciate anyone who leaves a nice five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you leave your review in the form of a question or, like, add a question to the end of your review... Uh, and it's a five-star review, we may answer that question on an upcoming episode of the show. Our card daddy, Bill Tilly, is our social media employee for Expert Shimoda. <laughs> he runs the at Greatest Trek account. That's the official Twitter feed of all things greatest. And the official Instagram feed now. Yeah, uh, they're both named the same thing, Greatest Trek and... Uh, there you'll find the official show posts and uh, a bunch of fun things too. Uh, we got to thank our buddy Adam Ragusia, who made uh, the original Captain Cisco song for this show, which is of course based on Dark Materia's original Captain Picard song, which you're hearing low under our voices right now. Uh, they uh, they made great music for us, and now Adam Ragusia has gone on to be. A celebrity YouTube chef. He'll teach you how to make some good food. Just search Adam Ragusia on YouTube. If you're someone who's living a life without a dress code, maybe go uh, pick up a Greatest Gen t-shirt. You can do that at the Max Fun store. All sorts of fun options for you there. Even uh, even tank tops. Yeah. If I remember correctly, it's tank top season. It is tank top season. Um, check out uh, our other shows, Greatest Discovery and Friendly Fire. They are also on the Maximum Fun Network. And with that, we'll be back at you next time with another great episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine and an episode of The Greatest Generation Deep Space Nine, which has aged us <laughs> to a terrible degree. <laughs> oh, no. It's the fruit bowl of episodes. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.